Welcome back to Awakening Reformation, where Reformation awakens now. My name is Grant, and joined with me is my beautiful wife, Erica, the weaker vessel. Hello, everyone. If you want to get to know more about us, we're a part of Rebel Alliance Media Network. Go to rebelalliancemedia.com to check out all the other podcasts in our network. Follow us on social media. You can also subscribe to Rebel Alliance Media on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher to get all of our content when it is released. We also have a Patreon if you would be so inclined to contribute financially to Rebel mm-hmm. Alliance Media. So patreon.com slash rebel alliance is where you can do that. And keep hitting the refresh button because we have some exciting stuff coming up pretty quick here. Yes, we do. What was that? I don't know. That is a true statement. <laughs> Grant like touched his glasses and it made a weird squeaky noise. All right, everybody. Okay. So tonight is... Covenant Theology Q&A. Dun, dun, dun. We are cutting out all the chitter-chatter this episode. No funny stuff this time. We are getting straight to the questions. Yep. And hopefully giving good answers. I'm a little scared. But we'll see. Who knows? It could go in, It could go either way. This might confuse you even more, or <laughs> this might be helpful. So, once upon a time, Grant and I were dispensational. Then we became... Reform Baptist. And Reform Baptist Covenant Theology, which is also called 1689 Federalism. I'm not going to lie. I never really believed in that. It kind of just confused me, so I left it alone. Did you? I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I tried really This is hard. a confession because <laughs> I shared with you all that stuff from the book I read and you were just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> all along you were like, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know that I thought it didn't make any sense. I think I just thought, like, I really don't understand it, and I don't feel like I can. And I was just, like, trying to make sense of my covenant theology anyway, and baptist thinking. Yeah. Yeah. We listened to a podcast that shall not be named, but they had a Presbyterian minister on. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about some of the differences between Baptists, Reformed Baptists, and Presbyterians. Yep. And to be really honest, I went into that episode thinking like, yeah, y'all are going to crush this guy. Like, get him, get him. Like, this is this is going to be really interesting. And then at the end, I was listening to this man, this minister speak. And I just thought, like, actually, what he's saying makes more sense with the rest of my theology. I remember walking into our bedroom. And you hit pause on the podcast and looked at me and you were just like, I think I'm okay with infant baptism. I was like, what? (laughs) And you're like, you have to listen to this podcast. Yeah. And and I think what really just solidified it for me was thinking like, this this fits with my soteriology. Right. That especially really stuck Mm -hmm. out to me. This fits with my soteriology. And at that point, I thought... Well, typically, when your theology fits together so perfectly, it's because it's intended to fit together perfectly. You know, right. like God God wrote scripture to fit together. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. contradict itself. So our theology shouldn't contradict itself. It should all fit together nicely. Yeah. And that was kind of the same convincing point for me was that I already believed that from, you know, the beginning of God's work of redemption till the church today, that it was through faith 
mm-hmm. trusting in the promised Messiah to come or that has come mm-hmm. is how people are saved. We see continuity through the whole Bible. So then why why do we insert discontinuity at random places, which mm-hmm. is what I realized Baptists are doing. So before we really get into this, we really have to preface this. Yes. We love our Reformed Baptists. Yes, we do. <laughs> Brothers and sisters. We are in a network with Reformed Baptist right. brothers. <laughs> so obviously we love our Reformed Baptist friends. We do. We would not be able to do ministry with them if we didn't. And honestly, you and I have both said, like, when it comes to baptism especially, mm-hmm. um, it's just not something we are willing to divide over. Yeah, we're not dying on that hill. It's really not worth it. We think it's super important. There are some... And implications are right, super impl- important. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and so those are more important to us. And then other things like post-millennialism, like a more optimistic view of the church's mission. Theonomy. Theonomy. And um, obviously a reformed soteriology, which affects how you preach the gospel, right. how you do missions, how you do evangelism, how you do apologetics. Mm-hmm. And so all of that kind of stuff, we 100% agree please don't hear us as like i don't know being trying ugly. to put wedges between yeah, yeah no we're, we're really not doing that we might poke fun at them and they poke fun at us and they poke just as much fun back i hear you poots <laughs> i hear you when you jab at us but it really is nothing but love yeah and it's super fun to just talk theology which we do with all of our reformed baptist friends yes so we just really got to make sure we lay that ground Yeah. Nice and thick before we start getting into this, because I don't want anyone to be like, oh, dang, there's going to be trouble in the network. There's no (laughs) trouble. At least I hope not. Yeah. Let us know, guys. (laughs) But we're not. (laughs) But we love you, so. That's right. Okay. Good disclaimer, babe. Thanks. So let's talk about one of the biggest questions, and we'll spend quite a bit of time on this, because this is something that I think it was Christina had asked us mm-hmm. um, maybe a couple weeks back. And so many Reformed Baptists ask this question of Presbyterians, and it's... It's a good question. Yeah, and it's, if everyone in the New Covenant is not regenerate, then how is it better? Mm-hmm. How is What's new then? What's new about the New Covenant then is how I've asked, is right. how I've heard because, it asked. Because Presbyterians would say, just like the Israelites of the Old Testament... Mm-hmm were comprised of people who did have genuine faith, saving faith Mm -hmm. in the Messiah to come. Right. And they were people who were just ethnically Jewish, religiously Jewish, but did not have any faith. Though they all offered their sacrifices at the temple, there was the saved, the elect, Mm -hmm. and then there were those that weren't. But they were all part of Israel, corporate Israel. Right. It's a mixed congregation mm-hmm. is what it is. And Presbyterians would say it's still that way. Right. And the sign was given to everyone in the old in the old covenant. Circumcision was given to every male, every regardless boy. of saving yep. faith or not. And that was, I mean, infants were given it. And On the eighth day, every boy was given right. the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. Mm-hmm. Obviously, an eight-day-old boy can't confess saving faith. Right. He was just born into the covenant. Mm -hmm. And so one of the biggest divides between Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians is that we would say children born to one or more believing parent is part of the covenant people of God. Right. And they should receive then the covenant sign of baptism. Because, like Peter said in Acts 2, this promise is for you and for your children 
and for those who are far off, all those whom God would call. Mm -hmm. And so... And we would say, if you look through the entire Bible, mm -hmm. where were the children excluded? Nowhere. Children have right. always been, from Adam on, mm -hmm. included in the covenant people of God. Yep. And it's actually really interesting because one of our good friends here in, at our church in Brooklyn, she grew up Jewish mm -hmm. in a very religious, um, orthodox Jewish family. And she, living in Brooklyn, had Christian friends and friends of different faith. And she had often went with them to, you know, temple, to synagogue and different synagogues. And then mm -hmm. she even went to a couple messianic churches. And it wasn't until she went to a Presbyterian church where she heard a pastor talk about how Jesus is the substance of the shadows of the Old Testament that she began to really understand the gospel and really see how in a covenantal framework, it really does answer so many questions for a person who is Jewish. Yeah, and she couldn't understand the Baptist position. She couldn't understand the Baptist position. It made no sense. And one of the first times we hung out with her, yeah. she even said, one of my biggest hang-ups was that the way I grew up as a Jew, my children would be included in mm -hmm. God's covenant people. Yeah. And it never seemed to me to be a good thing that my children would be born and not be part of the covenant people. That seemed worse, not better. Yeah, she was like, everyone tells me that the new covenant's better, and so only people who profess faith get. She goes, how is it better? Now all these kids are shoved off or, or excluded and and put yeah. out of the covenant and stuff now. How is this better? That's more, that's more uh, exclusive. Yeah. It's not better. Yeah. And we thought that was a really great point. Yes. Yeah. Coming from a Jew who understands... Uh, you know, the Jewish way of doing the covenantal yeah. family type um, understanding. Of understanding. Yeah. yeah. So that we thought was a really interesting point. But yeah. the Presbyterian would say, just like the Jews' sons were mm -hmm. part of the covenant family and the, the daughters too, surely. Yeah. But the boys received the covenant sign. Right. So are children born to one or more believers part of the covenant family. Right. And that right there would be a very stark divide between those two camps. Yeah. And the difference is that Baptists see that a profession of faith is a requirement before baptism. Right. And we don't see that explicit command. And I think it's helpful when we're talking about baptism to read Colossians 2. Mm -hmm. Do you want to read Colossians 2? Sure. And... um. And to start there to see, well, where are you getting this idea that baptism replaces circumcision as the covenant sign? Because that really is sort of a linchpin for the person who has to come to this idea that, that we don't circumcise boys anymore. Now, both boys and girls, because it's a better covenant, receive the covenant sign. This is where we see a broadening as well, where it's not just our sons that get baptized, mm -hmm. it's our sons and our daughters. Yeah. Colossians 2, verse 11 and 12 says, In him, so Christ, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so the circumcision of Christ is baptism. So what circumcision was in the Old Testament 
So the, you know, Paul is kind of using a literary skill here to say, so the circumcision of Christ, so the same thing that circumcision was back then, what that is in Christ is baptism. He's swapping them out. Right. He's swapping them out. Whatever that sign stood for back then, this is what baptism does now. Mm-hmm. And so he shows the the connection between the two there. Right. And another helpful thing to say after that is that we don't need to circumcise our sons anymore because what circumcision pointed to in the Old Testament and the reason why sons only received the sign of that covenant was because it was going to be through a son that blood would, must be mm-hmm. shed to save the covenant people. Yeah. There was going to be a son to even take on the covenant curse to be cut off. Mm-hmm. So it would make sense then that the sons would receive that covenant sign because it was going to be through a son that the covenant curse mm-hmm. was going to be cast upon. Right. And then after Christ, who was that son, yep. we don't need to have any further blood sacrifices. Yep. So now it's not circumcision, now it's baptism. Yeah. We don't it's not a bloody sign anymore. Yeah. To bring us into covenant because God has or Jesus has shed blood to bring us into covenant. I can remember asking that question if it's this to this, then why aren't just sons given baptism? And I think you have to understand what that sign of circumcision was pointing mm-hmm. to. And it was pointing to Jesus. Yeah. It wasn't egalitarian. Right. And the, <laughs> the new covenant reality of the spirit being poured out on all peoples is talked about in Joel. And that's what Peter quotes in his sermon in Acts 2. And that quotation from Joel talks about males and females and all these different, you know, People within a family and even male and female servants are spoken of as having this spirit being poured out on them. Mm-hmm. And so it naturally follows that now everyone receives the sign, male and female. There's no um, command to only limit it. Right. If if baptism is supposed – well, that was Wisconsin <laughs> – is supposed to be a sign of the Holy Spirit being poured out, which will be pour water onto our children, right. then – who is the Holy Spirit poured out onto? Men, women, children. Yeah, everybody. Everyone gets it. Everyone gets the sign. Yeah. But yeah, and so to take it back a step, there was no woman who was to shed blood. Right. But there is a woman to receive the Holy Spirit. Yep. So I hope that's helpful. That answers that question. Yeah. Oh, one last thing. The other thing to point out is that Abraham put faith in God and his promises and was declared righteous and then... Later, God gave him the sign of circumcision. So and faith preceded the sign, the sign for there. first generation. First generation. So when the new covenant starts, Pentecost happens, the Spirit's being poured out. That's why we see people having faith and then being baptized. Yeah. But then their children were baptized. I mean, it, it is very likely that in a lot of these households, there were children being baptized. We mm-hmm. still see the, the household framework shown. Right. So first generation, Abram, Abraham gets mm-hmm. circumcised after he has faith right. in the Messiah. And then after that, his sons, both Isaac mm-hmm. and Ishmael, receive the covenant sign. Yep. New Testament, like you said, same thing. We see first generation believers who were Jews who mm-hmm. did not believe in the Messiah. Right. Get faith in the Messiah, mm-hmm. profess faith then receive the covenant sign, which is baptism. Right. And then there's no command 
to stop including believers' children into the covenant family and giving the sign to them. There's no command changing that right. framework. And so that was what got us to, is that any good Jew on the day of Pentecost would have believed in the Messiah, been baptized, and then seen his kids around his feet and went, you can, you need some water too. Well, and you Just would know he's... that's even true today because you can talk to a Jew and yeah. that's what pushes so many Jews away from Christianity is they want their children included. Yeah. And it's most not of our better. church says that's worse. children go off into your church over there. Right. And you're not really included. We just hope you believe one day. Right. And that's why still today, if somebody at 30 years old and they have a few kids, they believe and then are baptized and then should baptize their kids. We don't right. just randomly baptize kids everywhere. Like, yeah, we're not like going onto the streets, like sprinkling yeah. some Aquafina on everyone's <laughs> right? children. That's not how and that works. try you name just spraying water yeah. everywhere. And if you walk Sufficient. into a Presbyterian church, they do baptize first-generation believers, mm-hmm. the 33-year-old, the 53-year-old. Yeah, right. yeah the- we're not infant baptism only. Mm-hmm. It's both. Yep, because you see both in Scripture. Yep, exactly. Uh, I think it was Doug Wilson who talked about that there are two ways that you can be part of the vine. Yes. One way is to be born into the vine. Grow up you in the vine. You just grow up in the vine. And You're that's... just part of it from day one. And that's our kids. Yeah. Our kids have been born into the covenant. Yeah. Or you can be grafted into the covenant. Which is the 30-year-old who hears the gospel preached, randomly stumbles upon a podcast in iTunes, and hears things yeah. about the Bible, and believes in the gospel. That's a, grafted that's a branch in. grafted in. Right. Exactly. Both can be cut off. Both can receive the curses mm-hmm. of that covenant. Yep. Um, Either one can, can not receive life from the vine yeah. and not bear fruit and then be cut off. And this is, this is, I think, one thing that convinced me too, is that even as a Reformed Baptist, I had to admit that happens. I mm-hmm. have to admit there are people that my pastor has baptized that are not elect. Right. So whether or not I want to say it this way, there are people in the visible church who are part of the church mm-hmm. who are not regenerated. Right. We just need to change our understanding about the vine. Jesus says, I'm the true vine and all that. That's talking about the visible church. And then... And it has to be unless you believe you can lose your salvation. Right. Which some do to to their error. Yeah. But some do. But and I'm saying like reformed people don't believe. Agree. Yeah, I mean, there's a perseverance course. of the saints that we would yeah. say yeah. all reformed people would believe in. Right. And then the olive tree... In Romans 11, you know, uh, Paul exhorts the Gentiles, don't be prideful. Don't think you're better. Mm-hmm. Because if the original branches were cut off, then so could you. Right. And so we we don't just, ah, you're just joshing us because we know perseverance of the saints, Paul. Yeah. It's like, no, it's a, it's, he's talking about a real thing. He's not kidding. Yeah, exactly. So that's, those are a few ways how this covenant is better. Also, we would say that we're talking about baptism being Mm -hmm. a symbol of the Holy Spirit being poured out and filling people. That is one of the reasons why this covenant in particular is better than the old ones, because prior to Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was not poured out. It was um, like the kings of Israel, the prophets, just kind of here and there. And now after Pentecost, it's poured out on everybody. Right. Everyone is empowered by the Spirit within them to obey God's laws, like those New Covenant uh, prophecies talked about. The Holy Spirit was surely at work. We can see him in creation. We can see him working 
at any time there's regeneration that happened, even in mm-hmm. the Old Testament, yep. he was working. Yeah. But now he's poured out. Exactly. And Jesus had to ascend to the throne before this he would send the helper, before the helper would come. Right. So Jesus needed to be glorified before he could send the spirit. Yep. He had to he had to finish his work. Right. Uh, another way that the the new covenant is better is like all of the feasts are one feast now, the Lord's table. Mm-hmm. And so we don't we don't have as many uh, you know week long feasts that we need to go to mm-hmm. uh, that God has commanded us. Now we have one feast, the Lord's Supper, that we go to should go to every Sunday mm-hmm. and partake of and rejoice in. Right. And now we don't have all the different sacrifices. Jesus has been the one perfect and true eternal sacrifice Mm -hmm. to atone for our sins and has made peace between us and God. And so the, you know, 600 and something laws about how to do sacrifices, how to feast, how to do all this stuff, a lot of it has been simplified and it has found its fulfillment in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it's better. Right. It's much simpler. Right. Uh, Also, it's better because all peoples are included. All nations are included in this new covenant. Mm -hmm. And that was always the goal from the beginning of creation on, that all peoples would be blessed. Right. That the Israel of the Old Testament would reach out to the nations. Yeah, be a light to the Gentiles. Exactly. Now in in the new covenant, we have Israel. This is where you get like, oh, placement (laughs) theology. Yeah, right. But the Jewish people are no longer the only people of God. Right. They are no longer the only light to the world. Now, all peoples, true Israel, who believe in the Messiah, who the Messiah is their Lord, are a light to the world, right? You are the light of the world. Yeah. You are a city on a hill. Jesus is talking about all those who are his disciples. Yeah. Now, from whatever nation. Yep. And he wants them to go to all nations. He told his disciples, go to Jerusalem. To Samaria, to Judea. And to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. The the whole thing now needs to be discipled and conquered. Oh, and by the way, here's this Holy Spirit that I'm going to pour out that will enable you to do that. Yeah. And that's how like 120 people turned into like 2 billion now. Right. Yeah. Today. And has conquered nations without swords. So, I mean, I think there are several reasons why this covenant is better Mm -hmm. than the old covenant. I don't think that regeneration has to be the only reason right. why this covenant is better than the old, which is kind of like a stalemate. A lot of people say, well, how can this covenant be better? Isn't it that people are regenerated and that's why the new covenant is better than the old covenants? What would you say to that? To the person who says, no, actually, scripture says that, and you kind of alluded to this in the last podcast, that God is going to write his law on the hearts mm-hmm. of people and give his people soft hearts and remove the heart of stone. That sounds a whole lot like regeneration to me. So everyone in the new covenant then must be regenerated, which and, is what we were taught and thought, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at good first, question. It's a, it's a super good question. Isn't everyone in the new covenant supposed to have a new heart and be regenerated? So how can you say it's this mixed... Mixed bag. Mixed bag, exactly. So I'll read it again in Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, 
and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So so again, the question we're tackling is, how is there a mixed congregation of people, unregenerate and regenerate, in the new covenant, if these prophecies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel say that in the new covenant, people will be given new hearts in that covenant? So right. how could it be mixed? How could people who are unregenerate have that is, have a new heart? This doesn't make any sense. Right. Which, like we said, is a really good question because that's often how it's taught. Right. That in the new covenant, which is the covenant that we're currently residing in, mm-hmm. everyone within that covenant has a new regenerated heart. Right. During the entirety of that covenant throughout history. Exactly. And we're saying that that is being taught wrongly. Yes. <laughs> so we would call this an overrealized wrong. eschatology. Yeah. We would call this wrong. <laughs> exactly. And I think you just have to go back. It was Ezekiel. Which one was the first one? Jeremiah. Oh, you have to go back to the verses in Jeremiah yeah. and read them carefully. It says, behold, the days are coming. Plural days. This is progressive. Right. So right- This doesn't happen instantaneously. Right. Right away, we see that the fulfillment of this covenant is going to happen over many days. It's like going to grow like a mustard seed. Hmm. This is where our post mill comes out, guys. Yeah. But this is how God has worked throughout the Bible in many different ways. He, he, gave, he gave Adam a little garden and said, make the whole world look like this. God has often started off small, started with 120 people in an upper room in Jerusalem, poured out his spirit. And, and then grew. it grows. The church grows. Mm-hmm. This is often how God works as he starts small and grows. He started with one family, Abraham, mm-hmm. and then grew. Well, and you can continue to read through those verses where he contrasts this covenant with the covenant that he made with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And he actually uses the word day singular. He brought them out of Egypt in a day. Right. But this new covenant is going to take days, right? plural. And so the amount of regenerate new heart possessors in this new covenant is going to grow and grow. Throughout time. It's not going to be instantaneous like when he brought them out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. It's going to be days before the church gets to a point where we don't have to witness to our neighbors. We don't have to share the gospel with our neighbors, which is what The ending portion of this says, And no longer shall each one say to his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Right. So evangelism, missions, is done at the end in the complete fulfillment of this covenant. So, Reformed Baptists or whoever, do you evangelize? Are you sending missionaries? To your neighbor, to your brothers. Then do you not believe this covenant has even started then? Right. I mean, it's like a legitimate question that you have to ask yourself. But from the post-millennial standpoint, what we're saying is when the new covenant was inaugurated, Mm -hmm. this began. God started giving people soft hearts 
And over the course of however long, Mm -hmm. he's going to cause this group of people to grow and his kingdom will expand. So much so that in the end of his kingdom growth, everyone will have regenerated soft hearts that it will be so pervasive, we won't even have to witness to our neighbors or to our brothers. This is the post-millennial hope. Yep. Exactly. That's the already not yet tension that some talk about. We already see the promises given to millions of people now, but it is not yet completely fulfilled. Right. Okay, so that's how we would answer that portion. What about the one in Ezekiel? So in verse 24 in particular, it says, Mm -hmm. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all of the countries and bring you into your own land. So again echoing what the Great Commission would be. And we know that the Great Commission is still going on right now. Yeah, we're still called to disciple the nations. Yeah. So this is prior to that eschatology being realized, right? right. We have to go to the nations, which is what it says in Matthew 28, therefore Mm -hmm. go into all the nations and baptize them. Yes. So what we're saying is this portion of scripture right here is the natural response for the Christian who does have the regenerated heart to go into the nation, to go win the Mm -hmm. nations. Yeah, that's God's plan is to draw people out. And then God talks about sprinkling clean water on them and cleaning them of all their uncleannesses, cleansing them of all their idolatry. And this, of course, is the spiritual reality that baptism points to where water is poured on us and it represents our cleansing by the Holy Spirit's power. But we only see this being completely fulfilled, right? I still sin, you still sin, everyone does. We still have idols. Right. And But we are growing in grace mm-hmm. and we are becoming from one degree to another um, more to image Jesus. Mm-hmm. And only in the end, only in Revelation do we see that death is no more, that mm-hmm. tears are wiped from our eyes and that... Let me read that portion to okay. you real quick because that might be helpful. In Revelation Perfect. 21, 27, we see this is uh, the new Jer- in the New Jerusalem where this is taking place. Mm-hmm. So verse 27 says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Yeah, perfect parallel. And then in Revelation 22, verses 2 through 3, it says, Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So again, the realities and the fulfillment of the new covenant we see happening in the eternal state that will finally happen at the end. We are seeing the first fruits of it now. Mm -hmm. We for sure say that Jesus rising from the dead was the first fruits of the new creation. Mm -hmm. And since then... A whole lot of hearts have been made new and people have been healed and there have been new creations in this sort of way for, you know, from that time until now and will continue until Jesus returns. Right. It is a growing thing. It's a expanding and growing reality. Right. So we would caution against an over-realized eschatology. Yeah, because you also kind of have to say that maybe it hasn't even started yet, (laughs) you know? 
well, you'd either have to say it hasn't started yet or we shouldn't be doing missions. Yeah. Those are kind of your options if you're going to go that route. Which it sounds kind of harsh, but neither one of those are good options. So let's just let's just cling to our post millennialism. Yes. So that's how we would answer those questions, mm-hmm. which are really good questions, and uh, I hope that was helpful. And once again, not yeah. just more confusing, but once again, when I said in the beginning, all of your theology has to fit together, mm-hmm. like it can't conflict. Yeah. This is where if you have a healthy soteriology, a healthy eschatology, your ecclesiology ought to fit nicely into those parameters as well. Yeah. Everything should fit together nicely. You shouldn't have anything that's out of place. Mm-hmm. And so if you are post-mill, then seeing those scriptures in, through the lens of a post-millennial standpoint isn't hard. Yeah. We will take a quick break and then we'll come back. Hey guys, this is Brian. And this is Jesse. And we run Reconciled Media. We create reformed, presuppositional, and post-millennial content. Check out Reconciled Radio, where we've interviewed guests like Joel McDermott and Darren Doan, and the Alpina Antithesis, where we engage the issues and events around our community from a full-orb, faith-for-all-of-life, Christian worldview. Both shows can be found on Apple Podcasts at Reconciled Media. Go to Facebook.com slash Reconciled Media to stay up-to-date with our latest content, memes of the week, and our Reconciled recommendations. Thanks, and go cultivate a kingdom culture. We're back. Okay. So I know you wanted to talk about apostasy. Yes. And and so the Reformed Baptists, they, they do believe in apostasy in some way, but with their view of the new covenant, it's kind of hard to see where everyone in the covenant has a new heart and they that's how they view it. It's kind of hard to even have a doctrine of apostasy and how people can really fall away if all of these passages are decretally elect right. view. Um, it's hard to have some kind of doctrine of apostasy if you don't see them as visible church, you know, as what we see with our eyes. So layman's terms, I would have said, once again, I was, I still am very dumb, but I'm just saying I, I not may not have understood what you're saying just there. I would have said as a Reformed Baptist that you cannot lose your salvation, mm-hmm. but you may walk away from your faith or fall away from the truth. But what you have to say is that they understood the truth. You understood the truth or you Mm -hmm. fell away from what? From the substance. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't that be then falling away from Christ? Or like you you have to do something with this kind of language is Mm -hmm. my point. Right. So an apostate is someone who from the Presbyterian's point of view was baptized into the covenant, either as a child or an adult. Yeah. You could have been a child born into the covenant, raised in the covenant, grew up and said, this is nonsense. I want nothing to do with it. Walked away. Apostate. Mm -hmm. You could have been someone who was going through a rough time in life, thought, hey, this church thing sounds really good. I'm going to give it a try. 
got baptized, did the Christian thing for a few years, realized this isn't much better because I'm not getting what I want from God, walked away. Right. Apostate. Mm -hmm. What we're saying, what you're saying, is that from the Presbyterian's point of view, it fits into our systems better. Right. This doctrine of apostasy. Yeah, because for them, they only have a view of the new covenant as, like, realized. Re so all regenerate. Right. So the, the new covenant from its beginning to end is all just regenerate. So how does a regenerate apostatize? That's my question. Right. You're kind of talking yourself into circles a little bit. The Reformed Baptists or I am? The Reformed Baptists. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. And I'm, I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. No, you're doing And I'm great. trying to, like, represent the... what I would have believed. Right without being insulting to the Reformed Baptist. So mm -hmm. give me a little grace here. Yeah. And I'm trying to like dumb it down to it's like to the least intelligible listeners so that even right. children can understand what we're saying. Like that's my goal. So I'm not trying to insult anyone's intelligence. I'm literally just trying to make it to where like a thirteen year old listening to this might be able to understand. Yeah. Or someone as dumb as I was. Yeah. yeah. Presbyterians have also explained it as the difference between the administration of the covenant versus the substance of the covenant. Where the administration of the covenant is what you see with your eyes and what you see here on earth, uh, like we've been talking about the visible church. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the substance of the covenant are those who truly possess saving faith gifted to them by the Holy Spirit to trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord and are regenerate and will persevere to the end and will not ap right. apostatize. So hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, and I think if you go to John... 15? Yes. If you read through that portion of scripture, which talks about the branches being cut off and thrown mm -hmm. into the fire, you have to realize that those branches were attached to the vine. Mm -hmm. But they didn't bear fruit. But they didn't bear fruit. Right. But they were part of the vine. And so the Reformed Baptists would say, yeah, they claimed to be Christians, but they weren't actually Christians. And the Presbyterians are saying, but wait, these branches are part of the vine. Mm -hmm. They are, they did not draw nutrients from the vine because they did not produce fruit. Right. But they were part of the vine. Mm -hmm. These children are part of the covenant. This person baptized as an adult was part of the covenant. They did not draw nutrients from it. Hence, they were cut off because they did not bear fruit. And they are going to be cast into the fire. Right. And in the fire pit, you're, you still look inside and go, oh, that's a dead vine. That's a dead branch from the vine over there. Yeah. You don't say, I don't know where that came from. Yeah. Right. You do know what that is. Yeah. So just try and <laughs> just try and like think about it as literal as possible. Like these branches are part of the vine. And that's why Jesus says abide in the vine because mm -hmm. uh, that's the warning. Like you yeah. are part of this vine. Abide in it. Right. He's warning against apostasy. Yeah. I mean, so many times Jesus, Paul, uh, Peter, they encourage and exhort the church in those terms. Right. They know that the spirit is the one who grants faith and grafts us into, you know, Christ and all this kind of stuff. But they're always encouraging, keep faith, be steadfast. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the visible church level where you don't know who's saved or who's not saved. But the apostles know, we know that the spirit is working in the elect and that the elect will persevere. The elect will keep faith till the end. They won't be cut off. There aren't branches bearing fruit that God is just whacking off. Right. 
a lot of this argument really is just properly understanding visible versus invisible church. It's true, huh? It really is. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about then some stalemates. Okay. What are some arguments we would have used or some things that we would have considered like a linchpin prior to someone teaching us otherwise? Uh, Well, the number one is that there's no command to baptize kids. Yeah. The Bible doesn't say to do it. So why would you do it? Once again, that's that's fair and that's valid. Yeah, because we want to obey God's command. So if you can show me a command, I'll obey it. Right. Yeah, for but sure. But I don't see the command. And I think sometimes this question comes out of a more dispensational way of thinking about scripture. And I'm not calling anyone who believes what we're arguing against here dispensational. Right. Because Reformed Baptists are not dispensational. No. And I don't want to say or try and convince people, you know, I'm not trying to slander anyone here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. That's good. Um. I don't, I don't think they're dispensational. But what I'm saying is I think it might be some residue yeah. from a more dispensational framework. And what I mean by that is we're dividing up the Old Testament against the New Testament instead of viewing it all as one chunk. Yeah, and inserting discontinuity where... There is no discontinuity. Is we see scripture as an unfolding story with several chapters, not as two different stories, Old mm-hmm. Testament and New Testament. Right. So just because the first few chapters aren't reiterated towards the end of the book, it doesn't mean that they're not part of the story anymore. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is we're building upon the knowledge we accrued in the first few chapters of the book. We don't keep saying the same thing over and over again, although there are things that are clearly restated throughout yeah. scripture, mm-hmm. but just because they're not stated every you know, every book doesn't say the same thing. That doesn't mean because Malachi doesn't say the same thing as Matthew that those two things are different. Mm-hmm. It's two different authors telling two different parts of the same story. Exactly. If that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, my answer to the question is that there is an explicit command. And that was when God commanded Abraham to circumcise your sons on the eighth day for your generations forever. There was the command to give the covenant sign to covenant children. Forever. Forever. Several times in the New Testament, we are called children of Abraham through faith. It's Romans 4. Uh, Galatians 3 talks about it. Those who believe in God and are accounted righteous because of that in Christ, we are children of Abraham. It's Father Abraham. And we teach our kids this song. (laughs) And many sons had Father Abraham. I I am am one of them. them. And, and so, so are, are you. you. Yep. We we'll teach. <laughs> we teach our kids, you're a child of Abraham. Why do we do that? Because they had faith in the Messiah, just like him. And there's never been a command to stop giving the covenant sign to children, to those who have faith in the Messiah, just like Abraham. There's well, no counter imperative is what uh, J.V. Fesco said. The lack of counter imperative means there's no reason for us to stop doing that. Right. It's funny, too, because we tell our children to obey the laws of God. We don't say, mm-hmm. well, that's that's gone away with it. We tell our children, obey your parents. This is right in mm-hmm. the Lord. We are assuming our children are in the Lord. Yeah. Hence, they ought to obey him. Right. Paul assumed that in that, Ephesians. Yeah, that was an assumption. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to be consistent 
enough to say, if I'm requiring my children to obey the commands of the Lord, mm-hmm. I I better assume that they belong to the Lord. Right. Otherwise, you're just shoving moralism down their throat. Be good because mommy wants you to be good. Yeah. Like that's... Wrong motivation. Yeah. What you're doing to your child if you don't believe they're part of the covenant is damaging. Right. What you're doing is saying, hey, act in a way that you actually can't act. Mm-hmm. Unless the Holy Spirit is enabling you to act that way. Yeah, really good point. And all of the baby dedications that happen and all the parents that actually truly invest into their kids. Our children were dedicated. They were and baptized. Well, that happened afterwards, but they were (laughs) dedicated as well. That's true. But we're glad that there are Baptists who still take the commands of God seriously and raise their kids as covenant kids. Whether they see their kids as that or not and give them baptism or not, we think they should. Mm -hmm. They rightfully should receive the sign of the covenant, but we're happy that the implications of that, which is raising them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, still happens. So what's the difference then? This chair is so squeaky. Sorry. What's the difference then between the baby dedication versus the baby baptism? Why would we say stop dedicating your kids and start baptizing them? So... Baby dedications are typically uh, parents promise to God, I will raise this kid in the way that you want me to. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a parent's pledge to God in front of the minister and in front of the whole congregation. It's a vow, which mm-hmm. are not bad. Vows are not bad. But baptism is a sign of God's work of salvation in the world. Which, once again, like we said, it fits better with our soteriology. Exactly. It doesn't matter what the parents do ultimately, though the parents have a responsibility, but you can have the best parents Mm -hmm. do the best work in raising their children, and ultimately it's not up to them. Mm -hmm. Whereas we understand, being reformed, that salvation is completely of the Lord. Right. It comes from on high. Salvation is of the Lord. It is not something we work and do for ourselves. Right. And it's almost in a sense when we put the covenant sign of baptism onto our children, we kind of made that analogous to like a wedding ring, right? Mm -hmm. That our children are in a very weird sense, like engaged to the Lord, right? Until Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit regenerates them. They're in that like phase of engagement. You betrothal. Are, yeah, like you are betrothed to the Lord. You belong to him. Yep, exactly. And this is kind of different because we don't do marriage the same way as they used to do marriage. Right. Now it's kind of all romanticized. But our children are betrothed to the Lord. They're given to him. Mm-hmm. They belong to him. And if they receive the Holy Spirit, they are married. They are sealed forever in him. Yeah. And part of a parent doing this too is recognizing that salvation comes from God. It is not in the parents' parenting Mm -hmm. that's going to save their kids, although God gives them things to do as parents to bring them up that way. It will be God. It'll be God the Spirit who uh, opens the eyes and heart of that child. Mm -hmm. And so baptizing the baby in a way is, Lord, I I realize this comes from you. I this hand is this nothing kid, I can do. Right. Please have mercy on, on my kid. You and know. he does belong to you. She does belong to you. Right. That was for free. Also, <laughs> when when we see baby baptisms in church, mm-hmm. we're always instructed by our pastor, like, remind your children of their baptism. Right. When you see another baby being baptized, turn to your kids and say, remember your baptism. Yeah. Remember to whom you belong. Remember who put their sign upon you. This is a cause for all of us to reflect on our baptism. We rejoice in it because we're 
There's one baptism, scripture says, and this is unifying. Luther said that everyone's baptism should reverberate through the rest of the person's life. Mm -hmm. The reality of that being, you know, clothed with Christ's righteousness and being part of the family and belonging to God, all of that should continuously be in our minds as we remember that we were baptized as an adult or an infant. We tell our kids all the time, you've been baptized. So remember what that means. Yeah. Remember that means you belong to God. We don't say obey because I want you to and you better not let me down. It's obey because you've been baptized. Remember to who you belong. Right. Remember what family you're part of. You're you part are a of... pagan kid. You're a Christian kid. Yeah. You don't belong to the, the pagan families of the world. You belong to Christ. You belong to his family. Yeah. And then you teach the kid, pray, Lord, forgive me of my sin and give me your spirit that I may walk in your ways. That's the new covenant. Like they're praying that God would do that and give that to them. Which is also kind of a funny thing that we teach our children to pray if we believe they're pagans. Right. Yeah. God says, I do not hear the prayers of the wicked. I am far from them, actually. So if you don't believe your child is part of the covenant, then you have to believe that God doesn't even hear your cute little child's prayers. Yeah, poor kid. Baptize your babies. So cards on the table, we never had our kids baptized as babies. No, they weren't. They were too old. Yeah, by the time we came Presbyterian, Nora was already four, almost five. Yeah, she was She was believer by that point. Yeah, she really was. She was like, I belong to God. (laughs) Yeah. And she was like super stoked about it. I know. It was funny. Anyway. All right. Um, It's another stalemate usually we we have here. We might have covered it all. This might be it. Yeah. Okay. So I have one question that's a really good question, actually. Okay. This is our last one? This can be our last one. Okay. If we say that baptism is so important in the Lord's Supper. Yes. Both of those things are important. Then... What happens to all those people on their deathbeds who come to a saving faith, have never been baptized or received the Lord's Supper? If we say baptism um, is so important, it's a sign of the reality of what God did for us. Mm -hmm. What if you never received the sign? Well, I would just point people to the fact that the spirit working the realities of what those signs represent is what saves you. Right. What you were, what we're saying essentially in those moments, and this is true of my father, actually, I believe. Mm-hmm. What we're saying in those moments is that they skipped the engagement and went straight to the wedding. Like Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> Vegas style crazy. Vegas style salvation. <laughs> Um, it isn't, it isn't so much that baptism saves you in that sense to where if you're never baptized, you're not going to be saved. Mm-hmm. Surely that was absurd. Right. But, you know, first Peter says baptism now saves, but Peter is not just talking about, um, someone getting water on them and the whole formula and, and the, you know, the rite and ritual of baptism. Peter's talking about something more broad. He was talking about Noah and the ark at that, at that, uh, text in his letter, baptism is a much bigger doctrine than just the new covenant sign. Mm -hmm. And what he means by baptism saves is those who have been brought through something, you know what I mean? The Israelites were brought from Egypt to the promised land Mm -hmm. and through the Red Sea is a baptism. Noah and the ark, they were brought through that judgment. That is their baptism. Jesus' death on the cross was a baptism brought through that, you know, judgment there. That's what Peter means by baptism now saves. People are brought through something. We die to sin and are made alive in Christ. Mm -hmm. That's our baptism by the Holy Spirit is that we're brought from our 
from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of marvelous light in in the sun, right? So even if you don't receive this sign, right, like you're never sprinkled or dunked, mm-hmm. doesn't mean you didn't you weren't baptized in Christ. Is that right. what you're trying to say? Yes. Do you agree with me? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, it would be great if they were. You know, those are those are really important things, like Erica said, for strengthening our faith, increasing our faith. When I watch someone else get baptized, it strengthens my faith. Well, and, and it's a command. Right. Know, we're commanded to baptize the nations, right. not me personally, but I'm just saying, like as Christians, that's something we're commanded to yeah. do. We're commanded to disciple the nations, and we're commanded to baptize them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's not possible because someone does come to faith and baptism isn't possible at that point in their life because right. it's ending. But um, but for the healthy, capable person, that needs to be something that we want to do is obey God's commands. Yeah, for sure. So I think that's pretty much it. I hope we kind of teased through and weeded through a lot of yeah. the common questions that we had. Like, I know for me personally, the why do girls get baptized mm-hmm. thing, that was... That was a big one. That was a big one for me. And I think another thing was just understanding, like, I have to do something with these apostasy verses. Like, I, yep. how do I reconcile that the branches are attached to the vine yep. and are cut off mm-hmm. with what I believe? Like, I have to do something with that. What were some of the other things that were really important to us? A big one for me was the faith preceding baptism and then understanding that it was first generation. That was a huge yeah. eye-opener for me. Yeah, that 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 is a really good point. And, you know, is it 1 Corinthians 7? Mm-hmm. When you talk about divorce or people who are married to a non-believer, and we actually counseled someone through this particular situation, too, where the wife was a believer and the husband wasn't a believer. Mm-hmm. And then she asked, like, what should I do? Like, can I baptize my kids? Should I not baptize my kids? Yeah. And... Um, you want me to read it? Yes, please. First Corinthians seven, thirteen. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise... Your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Mm. So we have to do something with that word holy. Mm. It may not mean regenerate, but set apart, just like Israelites were holy and set apart from the other nations. But not every single one of them was regenerate. Clearly not. Right. Um, (laughs) Branches cut off the olive tree. We read this. Exactly. Yep. But even in relationships, we see that you as a believer being with your spouse, like they are set apart. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's an influence, you know, it's the Israel is a light to the Gentiles, right? Mm-hmm. And so you still, as long as they consent, right, you stay inside that household because then you are a light. In the same chapter, Paul says, you don't know how that unbelieving right. spouse may come to the Lord. Right. And that's what I was going to say is even if you just look at sheer statistics, mm-hmm. Like, if a husband gets saved and he remains with his unbelieving wife, statistically, I think it's some crazy, like... like 80, 90% or something? Yeah, I think it's almost 90% of households are saved. Right, yeah. Eventually, they uh, come to the Lord. And vice versa. It's not as high if, if women are saved. Right. But it's still a staggering number. I think it's still like 65% of families are saved once one person in the family, husband or wife, is saved. Typically, the family mm-hmm. follows. Almost like being the leader of the household, actually. 
well, works. And it's biblical. Like right. God does save households. We right. see that. Exactly. We see Noah's family being saved. Right. It says nothing of Noah's kids' faith. Right. That they're saved through the flood. Well, we know that Noah's sons are kind of sketchy at times too, actually, One right? Of them for sure. But yet God brought them through the judgment because God saves families. Right. So anyway, that was kind of an important thing for us to just see that generational, first generation is saved, then the rest of the family follows. Mm -hmm. Anything else that was really eye-opening or crucial for your understanding coming from the Reformed Baptist side? Just the continuity. The Reformed Baptist side actually stresses discontinuity between each covenant. And then when I read O. Palmer Robertson's book, The Christ of the Covenants, he shows exegetically how each covenant is connected. Mm -hmm. And so like in Noah, you see the cultural mandate reiterated. So there Noah and the first, you know, chapters of the Bible are connected. And then um, Abraham and Moses are connected. It's always the promises I gave to your fathers. Mm -hmm. And that was what God talked to the people on Mount Sinai, giving them the law. It was connected to Abraham. And then of course, David's a Jew. So that's all connected. And then the new covenant is still connected because it's the fulfillment of all of them. Right. And so there isn't this like harsh discontinuity of, okay, I'm just doing this whole new covenant thing. And even in that, the Jeremiah passage where it says, I'm going to make a new covenant, not like this one. I've heard a lot of Reformed Baptists say, see, there is discontinuity. But the difference, the not like that covenant is that now you have the spirit, which is what the passage talks about. Now you have the spirit to obey the laws of God from your heart. Mm-hmm. And that's the new thing. It's not like that covenant because they weren't given that then. Right. And now we're given this new great reality of being united with Christ right. by the Spirit to obey him and walk in his ways. Right. To glorify God and enjoy him forever now. Right. So So there you go. Once there you again, go. we love you, Reformed Baptists. We do. Don't be mad at us. We really hope we didn't misrepresent you. It wasn't our intention. No, we tried to represent you well. I tried to remember back a couple years, (laughs) honestly, you know. And if there are still lingering questions, hit us up. We love interacting. We love having this conversation with you guys. And like, if you don't want us to like read your question on the podcast, if you're like, I have a question. I don't want them saying my name. It's fine. Like we can answer it privately. Yes. So we always ask permission first. So don't be scared. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for listening. We hope this was helpful, beneficial, and edifying. We pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened by the power of the Spirit. And until next time, get woke. Let's start with the microphone check. One, two, first. Water to the dry and weary soul of the true church. The kind of things that few search. They say that the truth hurts. Well, this pain is gained, so let's explain the new birth. First things first, can't neglect this at the start. I must preface my remarks with the deadness of the heart from original sin. The effects of the fall. The sin of our first parents brought death to us all. Since Adam was our federal head, what he did counted for us. In him were all rebels and dead. Yo, captured in the mind, disaster, sin and crimes in a dark state, Alaska in the winter time, sour in our frames, left to ourselves, we be devoured in the flames, cause we're powerless to change, if you feel that way, I pray that you respond happily, as you see what Jesus had to say in John chapter 3.